Welcome to the Tweed Couch Guitar Therapy Session, where we talk about all things guitar related. My name is Dr. T, and I am not a licensed therapist, but I play one on a podcast. Today on the Tweed Couch, we are counseling on how to get a gig. Not everyone is cut out to be a touring musician. Not everyone is a session player who shreds seven days a week. You may love playing guitar by yourself in your room or in the garage with your buddies. Maybe it's your calling to serve at a church or teach lessons. But usually at some point in a musician's hobby or career, they decide they would like to try playing in front of people. At first it can be real fun as you volunteer your time and create music that inspires you, but there is an extra amount of satisfaction that can occur when you get paid for your efforts in your craft. But how do you get a gig? What if you don't have a band? How much money do you ask for? Whose responsibility is it to market the show? How do you get more people there? And should I treat other bands as my competition? Well, we will discuss this and more on this group therapy session with John on the Tweed Couch. Well, John, welcome back to the couch for some therapy and some conversation about how to get a gig. So good to have you. Uh, Dr. T, it is so good to be back. You know, my last session on the couch went so well for me. I just felt mm. I had to get some more guitarism knowledge yes. into my little drummer hands. So Yeah, we beat it into you one <laughs> string at a time. <laughs> you know, and it actually, it inspired me. I actually picked up my guitars a little bit more and started playing a little bit more, which I haven't done in a while. So I actually got the pedal board out and like... Hooked up all 14 delay pedals and just had them going, man, after my therapy session. It was great. <laughs> That's awesome. Actually, speaking of which, you actually recently bought a guitar, didn't you? I did. I just bought a Strat. It was another pawn shop special. I, mm-hmm. I'm i a sucker for pawn shops because, you know, you go into them in like 100 pawn shops and I'll never buy anything. And then I'll walk in and be like, ooh, there's a Fender Stratocaster on the wall, and yeah. it was a Frankenstrat. It's a, a, yep. a Warmoth neck, but it has the Fender logo on it, so it's not actually a Fender neck, but it's really nice. It plays really nice. It had Texas Specials in it and some type of alder body, but it looks kind of like an Eric Clapton. It's black with the maple neck. and Oh, yeah, totally uh, a blackie. Yeah, and it, it, it just plays really nice. It sounds really good, and couldn't beat it for the price, so they yeah, got me. Yeah, well, and... For someone like you, because a lot of people may be like, why is a drummer buying a guitar if he already has a guitar? But you actually have a backline company. So to have something that you can easily either rent or just throw in the truck for if there's an emergency, that's actually a pretty nice guitar to just have hanging around and and everything. Yeah, it's definitely not something that I'm scared to let people play, obviously. I mean, it's got some dings and some nicks and... You know, when you when you do backline, the number of times where someone's been like, oh my gosh, this just broke or this just happened. I'm like, I got one in the truck. And yeah. to be able to, to do that, because it can make or break a gig, you know? It really can. I did a show with an ACDC cover band. I was running sound for them at a show. Tribute band. It was a tribute band. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I mean, it was full on, right? Like they did the whole deal. Their drummer broke all of his sticks. That's a loud show. <laughs> He's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And the band kind of was talking and he jumps off the deck and I'm like, I got a stick bag and I pulled it out and gave him the sticks I had. And he, you know, broke a couple of those, but you know, he ended up paying me for it, but he was like, it saved the show. Right. Like, cause if no one had drumsticks, yeah. it's game over. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're totally using the forks, the knives. Yeah. <laughs> prosthetics. I don't know. Yeah, like yeah. anything that you can get. Taking table legs off. But that's not what we're talking about today. We are talking about how to get a gig. And you and I have a unique perspective because between the two of us, the kind of gigs that we've gotten are like bars, coffee shops, studios, morning talk shows, arenas, open fields, festivals, state fairs, county fairs, funerals, college parties, church, camp, weekend conferences, corporate events, (laughs) school dances. You know what? The, The list can go on and on and on. So because of that, we're going to talk about how to get a gig. And really, probably the person we need to talk about first is the hired gun. Because the hired gun has a hard time getting a gig if nobody knows about them. So if you're the hired gun as the drummer, how do you get the gig? The biggest way that I've gotten those hired gun shows is typically been hanging out with the open mics, as it were, the the places where musicians play, right? Like when you go to the open mic shows or you go to the writer's rounds, those types of things, just so people know who you are. Occasionally they get to see you play. They know you've got the chops, those types of things. But the biggest way to get a gig is to make sure people know you're available, right? Like to be that guy that's out there checking out other people's shows, being with people, being around people. That's the easiest way to to get the gig is for people to know that you are available. Yeah, I would agree. I think if I had to put it into one word, the word would be exposure. Yeah. Because after all, if you don't have exposure, if people don't know that you play drums or you play guitar or that you're a fantastic singer or bass player, if we want to call them, you know, yeah. instrumentalists, I mean, musicians. We drummers will claim the bass players as part of the rhythm section. We'll, we'll take okay. that off your, well, that's, off your plate. that's a good place. Yeah. Because yeah. you're both outcasts. So yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> no, but it is exposure. You know, the fact is, is that you need to meet people in bands. Yep. You need to put it out on social media. Let people know you play. And to that extent, maybe start a YouTube channel. Maybe have something that is a demo. You know, back in the day, you used to actually put demos on a tape. And then sometimes they put it on like a CD. That's a round thing that people use as coasters now. Yep. (laughs) And nowadays, what people do is they like send their URL, their YouTube channel and say, hey, check me out. I think that those are all ways that can that can totally help you in all of that. The other big thing when you're looking to be a hired gun Mm -hmm. is to be available. If I want to make sure that people are going to call me for a show, they're going to call you one time. Yeah. And if you're not available, if you don't have that opportunity, you're not willing to just go do a show, whatever the show might be, Mm -hmm. people aren't going to call you again. I've done the open mic house drummer thing. I've done the hey, I need a drummer for this weekend. Hey, my drummer just got into a car accident. He's going to be out for a couple of days. I've I've had many of those opportunities. But ultimately, the way we met, we were both hired guns, right? Like we we really weren't in the band until it kind of became a band, right? Right. Actually, it was many iterations of that band. Because I got called to come play, and I played with a different drummer in that band. And then 
I all of a sudden couldn't play, so they had somebody else doing it, and then you ended up being the drummer, and then I got called back, and then that's essentially been that group for the last decade. And yeah. how I even got that job to begin with really comes down to this saying that I learned back in high school. And this saying was, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. And that is a perfect example because the person that we play with, which is Lynn Stone King, who is a Christian country artist, one could argue Southern rock because we play (laughs) with her. But for the most part, the main reason why both of us ended up being a part of it is not because of how much we knew Lynn. It was about how much we knew her husband. Yeah. Thomas and I worked together, did some production stuff together at a festival and then they were doing an event and they were like, we, our drummer, the one that you used to play with isn't available. And Thomas was like, John plays drums. Like actually neither of them had ever once heard me play. Neither of them had ever played a show with me. Thomas and I had worked a stage together for like two years in a row and Lynn needed a drummer. And then I said, sure. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm available. Let's, let's do it. You know? Yeah. 15 years later, here we are still still playing music together. Yeah, seriously. And, you know, all of those things really come into play as far as the hired gun is concerned. How do you get the gig? How do you even come close to getting a gig? Maybe you try and do your own thing, but you know you're not a great singer. Well, make sure that your guitar playing or drum playing is that, that much better. If you're a great singer, but you're not a great guitar player. Well, make sure your vocals shine when you do your own little solo gig, but then tell people you're trying to join a band. If anybody knows of a band, I'd love to be a part of it. So with that said, what if you actually have a band or you're a solo artist, you are trying to make it happen. Now, how does that person get the gig? Like the big gig, they're not trying to join a band. They're trying to, actually get a gig so getting a getting a gig you know the old adage exposure doesn't pay the rent right like a lot of places will tell you hey you could play here there's gonna be a lot of people you're gonna get exposure you're gonna be able to market yourself and that's good I mean occasionally you have to do that kind of stuff but the reality is musicians should get paid and that that to me is is the big thing but to get your foot in the door Sometimes you got to take your lumps, right? Like you got to play wherever they're willing to send you until you've honed your craft a little bit. I think there's two ways to look at it. One is if you're just starting out as a band, you got to talk to the people who have gigs and be like, hey, do you need an opener? Do you need this? Do you need that? And work your way in. Solo artist, same thing. Like, hey, I can be the solo artist. But I'll tell you that the number one way in which I started playing shows is I had something that no one else in my circles had. I owned the PA. Yes. So there would be a show, and this is like in high school. So my band got to play every show. There was this hot dog place called Nikki's, and they were like, hey, we want to do a show at Nikki's on Saturday night. Is your PA available? I said, yeah, and my band would love to open. So that's part of the deal, right? Like I won't charge you for the PA, but you're going to pay my band to be there. And then my band will run sound for you tonight. And I'm not saying everyone should run out and buy a PA or anything, but because quality of PA matters as well. It does. It does. But people knew that they could trust me that I had this stuff and that I was willing to use it and willing to, to put it out there. It's almost like the first question you had, how do you become a hired gun? How do you get a gig? It's all about who you know. Yeah. I did a ton of cover band work where we just played out and we, uh, you know, 
played other people's music and we played at bars and whatnot. And we had a, we had a talent agency and the talent agency is like, you're going to go play this $200 show, but it's going to turn into a thousand dollar show. You're going to go play this $300 show and we're going to turn that into a thousand dollar show. Yeah. We did have a plan on how to grow it. When we were kind of this first young band, we kind of beat everybody out because we had the better production. We had the better lights. We had the better sound and we kept putting ourselves out there and people noticed those types of things. So I guess to sum that up, it's do all of the small things well and that'll get you to the better gig. Like you said, it's completely accurate to say that what you take as the hired gun to get you in the band is very similar to what you do as the band to get the gig with the promoter or the venue or whatever. The fact is, is I still go to, you have to get exposure. Yep. Go meet the bands. And when you find a band that you like, try and do gigs with that band. Start making package deals, you know, where you say, I tell you what, I'll open for you at this one because that's your home place and you open for me at mine because this is my home place and I'll take a cut for you, you take a cut for me. And you start working out package deals where all of a sudden it's like, yeah, well for $1,200 you can get both of us. It's a bigger thing. There's more going on. We provide our own sound system and now all of a sudden there's more going on with that. I remember doing that with Fuller Still and 100 White Flags, which is my brother's band, bingo, and um, also with Runway 36, which was a great band. There was a number of bands in Minneapolis I remember doing that with, and it worked out great. But also with that, I remember mentoring bands, and that in itself was rewarding. So finding a band that wasn't at the place that you were actually helped us get gigs, Because you want to play at as many gigs as you can get your hands on. And then all of a sudden, we have a band like, I remember one called Rainy Day Benefit. And it was this like emo, hardcore, Christian band of high schoolers. And they got us a gig because their church wanted them to play. And they didn't have a sound system. But we did. And so they were willing to play for free and they paid us for the sound system and for being there. And so it's things like that, that you never know how mentoring a band in the future can actually completely help you out. And in that sense, then you end up meeting people who are bookers and promoters and club owners and festival directors and all of those things. They can land you a big gig. I will add one story. This story you actually know about. When Second Adam was somewhat established in the little Midwest area that we were, we tacked on with Life Promotions, which Life Promotions runs Life Fest. And one of the beauties of that was it was in our best interest to lock in with someone like Life Promotions because you guys are world known, internationally known, and we were Midwest known. And to join on with you guys allowed us to get in front of more people. And you all realized that the more popular we were, the higher the chance that more people would show up. And so you stuck us in front of 
what is probably one of our largest venues we ever played, and that was the Brown County Arena. Yep. Is that arena around anymore? No, it's now called something hall, the Veterans Hall or something. They tore the arena down and they built they turned it into like a big exposition center, but I know yeah, I know what you're talking about. We did we did the those pizza bashes in there. That's exactly right. And th- that was brilliant by the way, but essentially they would have in the big arena, they had all these people coming to see Oh, who was it that year? Toby, Skillet, Newsboys, pick a pick a large Christian band each year we had a different one. So, for sure we had like Seventh Day Slumber and we had a bunch of different people there and everything was going on in this big arena. And then as part of the fun to make sure that nobody left the venue and they were there for the whole day's stuff, you had this huge pizza bash and it was in the big arena right next door. And that's where we had our sound system set up. Everyone forced to stay in there and listen to Second Adam play. And it was awesome. I mean, we ended up playing for about 6,000 people. And it is one of the most fun events I remember having because it's one of those things that when you don't usually play for 6,000 and then all of a sudden it happens, somehow it rises you to a new level. And it's that type of a story that reminds me of it's not what you know, it's who you know. And it's because of those things and aligning yourself with the right people that gets you kind of the gig that you want. Yeah, I would tack onto that to say we try to do that with certain artists as a festival to your point of putting people in the right position to get them more exposure. I'm a true believer in paying people to play. Like I hate exposure gigs. I hate pay to play. That's a thing at festivals, right? Like you pay a thousand. You know, you pay the festival and then you get a cool spot. I'm much more a fan of saying, all right, I can't pay you a lot of money because you're not going to sell any tickets. But I'll pay you and I can put you here. I can put you in this spot and you're going to sell a bunch of merch because you're going to be right in front of a bigger band or you're going to be in these places. So I enjoy doing that personally. But to your point of like who you know, I think about shows that I've done. I go back to that availability point to say there have been opportunities where I've said, hey, this band just canceled on this weekend. Can your band play the show? You kind of make it work and you figure out your schedule and you try to be as accommodating as possible. And then it becomes your gig later. Yeah. When I was in a band called Cousin Peabody, we played this place called The Firelight. It's a summer destination. It's right on a lake and it's this Firelight Lounge, it's called. And we got a call like the Thursday before the Saturday saying, the band that was supposed to play here canceled. Can you guys do it? We had never played there before. We said, sure. You know, we'll figure it out. And kind of made other arrangements with uh, with other things we had going on. And we all went up, we did the show, and then it became a regular for us. We played there every summer. We played there the 4th of July week. We played there Memorial Day weekend. We played there Labor Day weekend. We kind of became one of the biggest bands that played that venue. And that's all because we made ourselves available to fill in. And we became one of their highest paid artists. Like, they had bands every weekend. We became one of the highest paid. And we got to do that because... We said yes when they were when they needed us, you know, and we could have been, I don't want to say jerks about it, but we could have been like, no, we want more money or we want this or we want that because you yeah. guys are in trouble. We showed up for what they were going to pay. Uh, it wasn't our normal fee, but we did it. And we, we had the weekend open and we wanted to play the show and we did it. And making yourself available to people definitely is, is, a, is a win, you know, like your pizza bash. We, oh, we, yeah. fed, we fed 6,000 kids pizza and we're like, you want to play the show? It doesn't pay a whole lot, but 
you're going to be in front of 6,000 people, you know? You mentioned something about paying to play. Yeah, it's about exposure, but you have a difficult time with that. And I agree that the pay to play kind of stinks. And I know that you and I both have seen that type of stuff happen with some of the bigger labels where, okay, you've got this main stage person, they've got an opener, but they decided to bring another opener and that opener paid 10 grand to be on the ticket. And that's crazy talk. But at the same time, you didn't sell tickets. Yeah. The headliner sold the tickets. So the fact that you were there was irrelevant. If you're going to see the newsboys, you're going to see the newsboys. Oh, who else is there? Okay, great. Like that, that's not why you went because ultimately if you're just a tiny little local band, they're not going to pay $55 to come see you, but they will pay $55 to see you and the newsboys, you know? So really it's about that edge of it. So with that, that's where you need to have these other things. And so this is what I would suggest to anybody when you're thinking about how do I get the gig and then how do I get more gigs? It is about exposure, you know, and yes, a YouTube channel, some sort of a video creation of what you guys do is important. Perhaps a podcast. (laughs) Having a podcast would probably help out too, you know, (laughs) but I would also say having what we used to call a street team. Oh yeah. And a street team is where you basically take your friends and turn them into fans and then fans become more fans and then you turn them into friends so that you continue fans and it just continues going and going, going. And essentially everybody's talking about you saying, yeah, this, these, these people are great and they're awesome. And then you go and you open for bands. And when you go open for a band, make sure that you never talk bad about them. It's always about how awesome it was to work with them and how you would love working with them again. And you say that not only on stage, but off stage, oh man, it was so great being there with them. Put it on social media. Make sure you always look active. Even if it's, hey, this is what the band's having for lunch. Awesome. And it's positive and whatever. I don't care if what you have is baloney in a hand. Mm-hmm. It's the best baloney in a hand you have ever had. So it's things like that that I find are probably the best way not only to get a gig, but to maintain getting more and more gigs. Even to your point there, once you get the gig, right? Like you have to keep the gig. If you're doing the bars and it's it's the cliche thing, right? Like if you're in the bars, like make sure, hey, tip your bartenders, tip your wait staff, take care of your whoever, you know, don't be a jerk to the bouncer or whatever. Absolutely. That really does matter. Like if the bar staff likes you, if you're good to the bouncers, if you're good to the the kid who brings the pizza out, you know, at the, at the bar or whatever, they're going to tell the owners, they're going to tell the managers that you were a good artist, that you were good to work with, that you were friendly. Yeah. We always, as a, as a band, we tried to make sure that we tipped the staff, you know, cause people would run drinks up or sodas or whatever. And at the end of the night, we try to make sure we tip them out cause we know they're, there working. They're, there earning their living. Yeah. You're on stage earning your living but you're using their services sometimes. So make sure you take care of them. Absolutely. And I would say that goes into festivals as well. Make yourself available, be pleasant, Mm -hmm. be on time, be all those things. We talked about those last time in the, in the stage etiquette one, but to your point about the pizza bash, you know, I know we never paid you guys a million dollars to play, right? Like that was because you guys weren't selling tickets, but 
being willing to do some of these weird things, like we're going to have a big pizza party and you're going to be in front of all 6,000 kids at this thing. And then six months later, you're going to play the festival that's in the same town or in the same area. Yeah. And now you've got fans. Now you guys have fans and I'm going to pay you again and I'm going to put you maybe after a band that I don't know about. So I know some of your fans are going to come see them, but I'm also going to put you before yep. a band that is going to have more fans than you. And maybe you're going to pull some more people. So asking for positioning and being available, some of the biggest things at a festival that have turned into long-term gigs for people is that willingness to, I don't want to say do anything. Cause sometimes you gotta, you gotta have your boundaries and whatnot, uh, depending right. upon what venues you play. Right. But we've had bands that, you know, it's like, Hey, we want to do this little bonfire thing and it's going to be a strip down, you know, you're just going to be there with a guitar. Hey man, we'll be there. We'll take care of it. We'll do it. We'll do it this way. We'll do it the way you want it. You know, again, sometimes it's not always contracted. Yep. But that doesn't necessarily do anything for the gig that you're currently in, but it'll do something for the next gig. Well, and I would say to that point, I remember I am they, which we've talked about before. They did a great job with that. But another one was building 429. Yes. In, In all honesty, they're a big Christian band. They will draw a number of people and they humbled themselves to this tiny little 500 person max venue to do a bonfire because it was raining outside. Yep. And they killed it. Yep. I mean, they walked up going, we planned something else, but this is what we've got. So hope you're okay with it. And people started shouting out requests and they were like, hey, do this one. He was like, okay. And so they turned it just into all request. And somebody came a little bit late and went, do this one. He said, well, we've already done it. And people were like cheering, saying, let's do it again. And he was like, <laughs> okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's do a verse and a chorus of it. And he did it anyway. And that's a part of what you're talking about. You know, that's how you keep that gig and you keep it going. And to that point, I would also add one other measure into not only getting the gig, but keeping gigs going. And that is selling the merch. Oh, yeah. Because when you sell the merch, it's the constant reminder of you. That physical CD, that download card, that vinyl, because that's kind of a thing now again. The t-shirts, the stickers. If you have some sort of a thing, a niche, you know, we wear suspenders, we have a fedora, we have whatever, and your name's on it, kids are going to buy it. People are going to buy it. And then that's a constant reminder of, oh, when is the next time that fog hat's in town? When's the next time Switchfoot's around? You know, that kind of stuff. And the next thing you know, there you are getting the gig again. It adds legitimacy as as goofy as that sounds. When you have a t-shirt and you're at a show and you're playing maybe the second time you've been at a venue or someone from another show comes and they're wearing your shirt and other people see that, they go, oh, wait, that that band's on the bill. Like, clearly you're a fan, right? It builds legitimacy to the artist. It builds legitimacy to, to the thing. You mentioned the street team thing and the super fans and the you know social media and all oh, that yeah. kind of stuff. That goes right into getting the gig, right? Yeah. Like if I have to choose, because I book 150 artists per festival and we now run two festivals and we do right. conferences and tours and all this stuff. So we, we book a ton of artists. And if I have to choose between two bands that are about the same price, that are about the same popularity, but one's got... 100,000 followers on social media and the other's got 20,000 followers on social media. And the one with 100,000 followers is like posting on a daily basis and they're like 
we just booked a festival, come play it, and we're doing this, and oh my gosh, here's the yep. here's the drummer driving the car. What how, what what's our jams? You know, like when they do all that That's stuff right. on TikTok and whatever. I'm going with that band. I want every artist to give me a video of them excited to play our festival. They put it on social media. We put it on our social medias. If you're willing to do that, you're going to get another gig. Yeah. If you don't want to do those types of things, you go down a, a rung. And yeah, we said this in the last one, and, and I'll say it again because I don't think I can say it enough. As big as the music industry is, it's a really small circle of people. Absolutely. As large as industries are, and and it could be any scale, right? Like Christian music industry, thousands of artists, tons of people, millions of followers, all these types of things on Facebook. It's a small entity. Like everyone knows each other. The music scene in Dallas, Texas, as big as Dallas is, it's a small scene. Super small. I live in Appleton, Wisconsin. Like everyone knows each other. And this goes back to the hired gun thing, right? Like everyone knows who I am. They all know I play drums. They know if they really need a drummer that they can call me because I've made myself known and people know who I am, but keeping gigs and getting gigs. If you got a bad reputation, it's hard to get rid of and it's hard to get out of that. And it takes a lot of goodwill to get out of that bad reputation. If you are looking for a way to help support the Tweed couch and it costs no money to you, then check out our YouTube channel and become a subscriber. Also, you can tell someone about the podcast and share an episode with them. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Let's hear from another sponsor. Are you looking for a party with a purpose? If you love music, if you love family-friendly, if you love camping, then you should look into LifeFest. LifeFest is one of the largest Christian music festivals in America and draws attendees from across the United States to worship together deepen their faith, and strengthen relationships with family and friends. This three-day event features dozens of artists, engaging seminars, and much more. This year, in 2021, we have two festivals. Come join A Party With A Purpose in Oshkosh, Wisconsin on July 8th through 11th, or on the Johnny Cash Hideaway Farm in Bon Agua, Tennessee on July 29th through 31st. I'll see you there. Most people who get in a band, they're not in the band because they wanted to become rich and famous. Most of them started because they love the music. They love the creation. They love being able to have their artistry out there. But at the same time, they also realize that they will never make a living without the money. Yeah. So that probably brings up the question of how much money do you actually ask for when you get the gig, because you don't want to undersell yourself. But at the same time, if you oversell and you have way too much of a gig fee, then you're never going to get booked. So what do you ask for? It's obviously a a huge scale of possibilities. If you're a hired gun, I kind of have my set prices. Like I don't get out of bed for (laughs) less than a couple hundred bucks to go play a show. Depending on how far it is. Depending upon, what? yeah. Like, I got to cover my expenses and I got to make a couple hundred dollars. And that's changed since since I'm married and I have kids now, right? Like, right. 15 years ago before I was married and had kids, I'd be like, oh, 50 bucks and a free pizza? Great. I'll, I'll drive to I'll drive 30 miles to go do that show. Oh, yeah. But now it's more about the value of your time. But for artists, essentially, the only statement I have for this is you need to get paid 
and ask how much they're willing to pay. Because yeah. the scale is so off the charts. I could give you the breakdown of the calculation. It's roughly 20% of the calculated ticket sales that you will encounter at the festival. Ooh, nice. So if my headliner on that day brings in $100,000 worth of ticket sales, they should expect to make about twenty grand, give okay. or take. If Second Adam's showing up and they're going to sell no tickets then it's kind of league minimum, so to speak, from right. like an NFL term, right? Like Absolutely. At my festivals, you're going to make $500 if you're showing up with a band. Like, that's what you make. Like, I, I don't want to pay yep. anyone less than that. I think if you're not going to sell any tickets, at least what I can do is give you catering and give you 500 bucks, right? Like, I should have that right. in my budget. Each spot on the festival side of things is priced. My headliners get X number of dollars because I know what my ticket sales roughly are. I know how much I can value each spot at. And it's a percentage of ticket sales because I know how much my generators cost. I know how much my production costs. I know how much all these other things are. If you're just starting out as a band, the biggest thing I can tell you is play for what they're willing to pay you. Take a bar, for example. If if a bar says we pay $500 a night and you're like, oh, we want $750, you're not going to get the show, right? Because right. a bar pays 500 But if you play for 500 and you pack the place out with good people and, and good a good crowd, a bar owner, obviously not crooked ones, but a good bar owner is going to say, this is how much money I, I make with band A. This is how much money I make with band B. And if band B brings in twice the number of people who sell twice as much you know product... I'm going to pay them more and and you should pay right. them more and you should get paid more. Right. And that goes back to the street team and that goes back to your friends and that goes back to all these things. Nothing irritates a bar owner or a club owner more than having a band show up with a huge guest list, right? Like all these people get in without having to pay the cover. Well, the cover is how the bar offsets the cost of having a band. And I don't know if that answers that question, but as a drummer, I set my threshold and say, if I'm a hired gun, if I'm coming out to a show, I need X number of dollars because this is what it costs me to be away from my family, be away from my other job, do my thing. Even when I was full time, I had had my standard, had my minimum. Yeah. If it didn't pay that much, then I didn't do it. So it's kind of whatever the the threshold is. But if you're playing small clubs, you're not going to get paid as much as if you're playing festivals and arenas. If you're playing festivals and arenas, you're going to get paid more than if you're playing the county fair. Well, because of the 20% rule. Right. Right? Yeah, which makes total sense. I agree with you. I think that as the person who is maybe early into playing, your goal really does need to be, can I get my expenses made? Oh, yeah. Like, can I get gas money, food money, possible rental money? If I had to get more musicians in order to do the gig because somebody wanted bagpipes or something, then, you know, can I get all of that covered? If the answer is yes, do it early. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. That's that's looks like you're doing the gig. That's all there is to it. But once you get established after that, if a place can't cover what it is that you think that it takes gas, food, lodging, musicians in order to get out there and they're unwilling to do it, that's when you have to do the negotiation. Oh, yeah. You know, can we get 10% of alcohol sales at the bar? Can we get 20% of the cost at the door? Can we get 
X amount of food sales at the state fair, you know, whatever, you know, and now all of a sudden you have something to negotiate with, you know, you just try to get something with it. Because the fact is, is that the more value you add, the more the venue will pay to have you there. Ultimately, does that come down to they don't have staging? They don't have a sound system? Well, I do. How many bands are going to be there? You want me to do them all? I can do them all. How much are you going to pay? Do you want to use our amps? Do you want to do all that? You want to? I tell you what, we'll be the opening band, much like what you had mentioned too. You know, yeah, we'll be the opener. That that's fine. We can do that. How many people can you draw in the area? Can you draw a lot of people? You know, much to what you were talking about. So all of those things, that the good publicity, all that kind of stuff, those things add to your value, which adds to how much you can ask for. Now, I will say this, and this is the one thing that most people on this podcast, in this therapy session, will possibly be surprised by, but the fact is, is that what you make for the booking is not actually meant to pay for the band. It's actually what you make in sales. Oh, yeah. It's the merch. Actually, a great example is Toby Mac. Mm-hmm. I remember talking with Toby Mac, who is a huge Christian artist. He was a part of DC Talk back in the 90s, which is actually his springboard to Toby Mac, which I would argue is a much larger band than DC Talk was. Although DC Talk was huge in the 90s, people know Toby Mac. And I remember talking with him one time and he actually said, gosh, I really hope that merch goes well tonight. And I was like, why? And he said, well, that's how we make our money. Because what he got paid to be at the venue went to all of his musicians. It went to his front of house engineer. It went to his monitor guy. It went to his stagehands. It went to the roadies. It went to everything else. And what he got paid as the artist, as the person who owns all the rights to everything, was in merch. Yeah, you hit right on there. What people don't understand is... They're a touring band, right? And they, they're yeah. out every night doing shows and they're doing their thing. But tour buses, a tour bus, costs $2,000 a day to have on the road. Insane. In Toby's case, his second tour bus costs another $2,000 to have on the road. Yeah. And then Toby's semi costs another $2,000 a day. Yep. This is a daily rate. If you're playing a show... You've got $6,000 in trucking costs per day. This is averages, obviously. But if you don't have a show the next day, you still have $6,000 in trucking costs for the next day. So for like a festival, for a one-off date, people kind of get shocked at how much it is for a Toby Mac or a Newsboys or whatever. And you start doing the math and you're like, okay, well, it's a day from Nashville. It's a day back to Nashville and it's a day of being on site. So... For Toby Mac, for instance, he's got two buses and a semi. I mean, that's $18,000 just in trucking. He hasn't played a note. No one's moved a case. No one's done anything. And he's got $18,000 just to get to the show and home. And then he's got a crew. He's got a monitor engineer, front of house guy, a lighting guy, an LED guy that does all the video work. He's got a couple of stagehands. So he's probably got six or seven guys who are all getting their day rates. 
And then he's got his band. He's got a drummer, a bass player, a guitar player, and a keyboard player, and a couple backup singers. And he does all these things. So he'll put 20 people on the road just to make a show happen. And all of them get paid. Right. And then he's got all of the equipment that he brings. He's got to pay for rent or do whatever. So to your point, there's a, a cool story, a band for King and Country. They kill it in merch. I mean, they just do amazing, right? They they've got yeah. trendy stuff. It's cool. It's hip. It's I mean, they really do oh, a good it's job. It's so good. Yep. And one night we were talking to their merch guy. They sold more in merchandise than we paid them to play the show. That's amazing because you guys pay a lot to have them there. <laughs> and so to, to because see, they sell yeah. the tickets. Yeah, of course. And they bring a lot of their lighting. Yep. And yeah. The, the giant Absolutely. LED walls, and they, I mean, they do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And all of that stuff, when you factor in the cost of these things, a lot of bands don't own, they lease. So they're they're paying for stuff. Talk about, you know, timing with pandemics and stuff. A lot of artists have warehouses full of equipment that's just sitting there. And it's costing them money, even though they're not on the road, even though they're not doing their things. Yeah. But uh, obviously, to keep this a little more less timely uh, <laughs> in the pandemic yeah. world. But... When, when bands are out touring, that's why they have to play every night. That's why they have to hit all of these shows because they have fixed costs. All right, for the next six months, I'm going to have this production in my semi and it's going to cost me a half a million dollars to keep all this stuff in a semi. So every show makes that percentage of how much I paid smaller. Yeah. Every day we're on the road, whether we play a show or not, it's $6,000 to keep these two buses in this semi going down the road. All of that kind of stuff is it, it adds up, and and to your point of of making your costs, make sure you get paid at least what it costs you to put on the show. Obviously, the bigger the band, the more it costs to put out there, right? Yeah. And these things don't even count manager fees, booking agent fees, their promotional billing, right? Because when you talk big, big festival bands and stuff. Part of the contract is that you, as the headliner, need to do an ad buy. Yeah, you as the B band have to do an ad buy to promote the festival because that's part of the contract, yeah. part of the negotiation. So, all of that kind of stuff plays into all of your expenses. Obviously, if you've got street teams and you've got these free media outlets and these free social media outlets to do stuff, it's totally beneficial for an artist. So that probably sets us to one of our last things that we'll end up talking about is. So now you have the gig. You want to get more people there. Whose job is it to actually market the gig so that you make more money and more people end up coming? Yeah, I think the the, the simplest answer is everybody's, right? Like it's yeah. your job to get people there. Talking on small scale, if you want to play at the local coffee shop and the coffee guy's like, I'm going to pay you $100 to come in and play a show and you start playing your show and three people show up and none of your friends show up and none of your people come. You didn't put out anything on social media, nothing like that. You're never going to play there again. Like that's not part, that's not how it works. It's your job to market you. You are the product. Bar owners should promote it, right? Like they should put up posters. When I was playing full time, like me and my bass player, it was our job to like drive around on weekdays and like give out posters to upcoming shows and, yeah, and and you know make sure that the bar owners put them up at the right times and those types of things, and then to like show up at the day of the show and see like the posters are still behind the bar sitting on the like ah, right you know we did our part oh, yeah. you didn't do yours but a lot of this was pre social media like when we kind of ended 
when I ended playing full time is like when MySpace first started. <laughs> so, yeah. so times they are a changing, right? Like things are completely oh, different yeah. now as far as promoting, but we would call everyone we knew and say, Hey, we're playing at this place. You got to get there. This was kind of as texting was a thing, you know, so people would text. Oh yeah. We'd kind of have our text distribution list. Like I would sit there on Saturday afternoon texting everybody I knew going, Hey, come and come out to this place and see us play. Now that social media is a thing, it's obviously a lot easier, but yet you can get lost in the shuffle. It's definitely everybody's job to market the show, but you need to do it your way. You need to do it well. If you're a TikTok guy and you know how all that works, promote your stuff on TikTok. I mentioned ad buys, right? Like big artists, part of their contract, part of what I'm paying you to do is to promote our show on your social medias. That's part of what you're getting paid. But if you're not getting paid to do it, you should still promote the show. Because that goes back yeah. to the bands that promote the shows, bands that are talking about their shows, bands that are getting their people there are the ones that we're going to bring back, are the ones that are going to get back to the bar. You know, the bartenders are going to be like, man, there were so many more people here the night we had band whatever. And then the next night we had a different band that didn't do any marketing. The band that brings the people in, bartenders make more money, bar owners make more money, everyone gets happy. The band that brings more people to a festival... We sell more hot dogs, we sell more soda, we sell more tickets to the event. Festival yep. people are happy, bands happy, they sell more merch. It's all about the snowball effect, right? Like if you get yeah. people to show up, more people are going to show up. And then the people that you didn't get to show up are going to show up the next time you play. And confidence breeds confidence and, and excitement breeds excitement. And You know, really the thing is, there is a band that always comes into my mind whenever I think of who is responsible for marketing a show? And that band is Super Chick. And I know that you may be like, Super Chick, what kind of a band is that? Is it a bunch of girls? And the answer is no. It's actually a bunch of guys with two girls who were the front of it. And they were sisters. And well, they still are. But, yes. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is that that band, when they were young, impressionable starting a music club almost they went to life fest that was their first show yeah and they asked permission and they said we have posters we'd like to put them up and the statement that was said was you can put them up just make sure you take them down and it was like awesome and they went around on scooters they just had little scooters and they went around they taped stuff up they handed them out to people and they made this huge buzz about look we're playing our show. We want to do this. Let's do this. And it was absolutely amazing to see the amount of people they generated to show up and be at their show. And ultimately what ended up happening with Super Chick was they became a pretty well-known Christian artist. And ultimately Life Fest, which was their first show, which ultimately ended up being their last show as well whenever they started having a bunch of kids and decided it was time to call it. We pulled them out of retirement. It was... That's right. We were doing a tour with uh, one of the sisters. Her husband was the bass player on the tour. That's right. Trish, one of the sisters, came out to the show and we were talking to him. We we're like... He was Thousand Foot Crutch? Yeah, he was the bass player for Yeah, for that's TF right. No, he was a guitar player for TFK. And uh, we said, hey, Trish... 
you know, you guys haven't done a show in a long time. Wouldn't it be great to do like one final reunion show? And she called the other guys in the band and the and her sister and said, yeah, we're, we're going to come out and do one more. And I tell you, it was an amazing show. Going back to their first time at Life Fest, I mean, they were on those scooters. They were literally going around with bullhorns going like, come to our show. Like, you're going to love it. And I mean, they were just being wacky and goofy people. And people showed up and like, okay, what is this? Like, I heard everyone, everyone was talking about who they were. And then it, it turned into a pretty successful career that ultimately oh, yeah. ended kind of, like you said, when they started having kids and got everybody got married and, yeah. and whatnot. And then when they did the reunion... All of these, you know, now adults with their kids are there like, you got to check out Super Chick. And people were like, who is this band? But they were just so good and it was so much fun. The bands that that don't interact with crowds, the bands that don't interact with the people, they don't get to keep shows either. They don't, you know, they don't, yeah. they don't get asked back. If you're sitting in artist hospitality or sitting in the catering tent all day, you're like, oh, it's three o'clock. I got to go play my show and then come back and sit in the lounge again. That doesn't do anybody any good, and that doesn't that doesn't keep your fan base engaged, and doesn't do well for the shows. I know you know Second Adam. I mean, you guys always had a great show, and you guys were always talking to people and talking. You, you <laughs> spent a ton of time at your merch table. People were like, "Who are you guys? What are you guys doing? Oh, we're we're, we're this band. We're gonna play it at this time. Come check us out." You know, something as simple as you know the little whiteboard on your merch table saying yeah. when your sets are and when your shows are gonna be. You know, that makes a world of difference in the confines of a festival, but how hard is it to click share when, when the festival posts that you're playing or when the bar posts that, hey, we have live music and you share it and yeah. go, hey, so-and-so's here. But I'll tell you one more thing. What really gets my attention is when artists, specifically in small clubs and small shows and, and, and local things, uh, but festivals as well, when you're not the band playing the show and you share the media posts and you talk about, hey, man, we played... River's Edge Pub and Grill. It was a great time. Come next week when they've got this yeah. other band, or you know, using your social media presence and your influence of people, your sphere of influence, to get people to go to other shows and to get people just excited about live music and about doing things. That means a lot to the bar owners. That means a lot to the club owners. That means a lot to the festival owners and producers when you're willing to promote. Not just your entity, but what they're trying to do in that live music venue. That means a ton. Talking specifically about the festival, we've got bands that share every post that we put out. Doesn't matter if we're talking about them. Doesn't matter if we're talking about whoever. They might be booked at the festival. They might be booked at next year's festival or or the, the previous festival or whatever. They're always sharing our stuff. They're always talking about our stuff. That's going to get you a ton of goodwill with whoever you're working with. It's just a great way to be in community, right? Because then if Second Adam plays a show and they post about 100 White Flags show, 100 White Flags post about Second Adam show, it's being involved in community and stuff. So it's just a huge way to work together to keep live music going. One of the statements you mentioned was the whiteboard talking about the next show. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, the whiteboard is your phone. Oh, it yeah. Is Snapchat, it is Facebook, it is Instagram, it is Twitter, it is TikTok, it's all those things. And the fact is, is when you post often, even if it is the band eating the sandwich or getting stuck in the mud or a flat tire on the road, whatever it is, using hashtags, that right there helps to promote your band, you know, at LifeFest. Real quick about the hashtag thing. 
Spelling matters. What? And I'll say it one more time. Spelling matters. Hold on. Is that matters with two T's or one T? (laughs) (laughs) Maters. 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 Oh, wait. All right. So life fast is spelled weird, right? Like it's L I F right. You know, E S T. So it's it's two words kind of shoved together. The number of times that we've had artists post hashtag L I F E F E S T. I'm like, no, that's not the hashtag. Or no. <laughs> or they'll put a space in the hashtag of the band name. Like, no, it's all you just gotta you don't know space, just put it all back together. Or trying to do this other thing. Spelling matters, right? Like, ask the promoter, oh. ask the venue, do you have a preferred hashtag? The festival, we just use just the name of the festival. But some places will be like, hey, we're Dixie's Roadside Bar, but you're playing Dixie's Bash 2020. We want that, or 2021, or whatever. That's the hashtag we want you to use in social media. Pay attention to that stuff. Well, I guess that probably brings us to final thoughts. Oh, and yeah. I'm going to give you a final thoughts that I kind of have with basically what we've talked about so far. And that is, it's hard to get a paying gig. Ultimately, where you're going to be able to get that paying gig is going to be one of two big things. Either you're just going to know somebody. You know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. The other is you've just gotten exposure. Someone has heard about you. Someone has heard from you. Your press kit, whether it be digital or it be actual mailer or whatever, just looks so impressive. Somebody says, I got to have you. Something also worth adding, bands are not competition. What bands really are is another outlet to get another gig. Because the more successful you are, the more successful they are if you've aligned together because this music industry is smaller than you think, you will rise to the top with them. One thing that I failed to mention earlier, you know, when you talked about how do you get a gig, I can't underline practice enough. Being Mm. prepared and being ready to play a show, a lot of people, they practice for a, a particular thing and then they leave their instrument laying around being ready, right? Like if someone called you tonight and said, Dr. T, I need a guitar player. The show's in 20 minutes. Well, you turn around behind you, you grab one of the Paul Reed Smiths off the shelf because they're all tuned up, (laughs) they're all ready to go. You put it in the case and you go to the show, right? Being ready to play a show, having your instrument, which is your tool, right? Like it's your tool belt. Having that stuff prepared, having that stuff ready to go. Being available and being proficient enough to walk into whatever situation that people want you to walk into. I mean, when I do these open mics, I cut my teeth on playing open mic night. As the house drummer, guitar players would show up and they'd turn around and be like, Mustang Sally, you know, and you're like, okay, I'm playing Mustang Sally again for the third time tonight. Yeah, and somehow they're playing it in 3-4. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes they'll turn around and they'll be like, you know, walking, walking after midnight. I'm like, I don't know that song, but here we go. You know, I'm willing to do it and willing to try it. But as you grow and as a musician and as you, as you learn a catalog, practicing those things and being ready for that stuff, I can't underline it's who, you know, it's being available for a gig 
It's being willing to, to put yourself out there to do it. That's kind of how you get a gig, right? Absolutely. Well, that concludes our time of the Tweed Couch Guitar Therapy Session. If you like what you heard, leave five stars in a review. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Tweed Couch. Until next time. Oh, oh, oh.